0: And Chris is a real scholar, so I'll just offer a few reminiscences uh, and then turn to Chris to give the the real presentation. Um, So active measures um, and hybrid warfare, uh, political influence operations are all phrases. Um, Various people define them in different ways, but let me just offer one definition for purposes of my remarks. Um, Active measures would include propaganda, deception, covert action, uh, political influence, operations of other kinds, such as funding political parties uh, abroad, um, those kinds of things. But if you will, activities short of kinetic warfare. And then hybrid warfare might be seen as active measures plus kinetic uh, warfare. Uh, so for example, in Eastern Ukraine, we have seen active measures, but we also see kinetic warfare with uh, constant shelling by. Uh, Russian forces from Russian uh, proxies. Uh, so this has a, a long history. Um, <clears throat> only a couple of us in the room are old enough to remember a common term, uh, the Soviet uh, mechanism that supported popular front activities around the world. Um, this got off to a greater start earlier uh, when the Soviets thought that they could build communism around the world. Then it became more constrained as Stalin focused on building socialism in uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, But it was always active during the war, including supporting the US Communist uh, Party uh, here. Um, There was a period uh, which is probably most comparable to our current period. And let me just make a few comparisons. And that was the period 1980 to 1984. It's probably the closest to now. So what made that period distinctive? Well, leading up to that period, there were several activities that caused the West greater concern about Soviet operations abroad. So in 1975, uh, Soviet and Cuban forces went into Angola, 77, 78, uh, Ethiopia, Somalia, conflict. But the real break point came in December 1979 when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in the nuclear realm in the mid-late 70s, the Soviets started deploying the SS-20 missile, which is uh, a medium range or intermediate range system that was aimed at European targets and uh, in Japan and South Korea. Uh, that missile, NATO believed, um, exploited a, what then was called a gap in the deterrence spectrum. So we were concerned that it might undermine the credibility of NATO defense and the US-Japan Security Treaty. Um, Chancellor Helmut Schmidt in 1977, I believe, gave a speech saying that NATO had to to make a response. Uh, Two years later, in December 1979, two weeks before the Afghan invasion, and they're not correlated really, um, NATO decided to deploy cruise missiles in Europe and Pershing II ballistic missiles as counters to the Soviet SS-20 missiles. So that month, December 1979 was both the NATO decision and the uh, Afghanistan invasion. The next break point was just over a year later when Ronald Reagan was elected president and one of his first initiatives was to uh, build up U.S. strategic nuclear arms. So that was with MX missile, B-1 bomber, um, number of other um, associated activities including ultimately the Trident D-5 submarine system. Those three activities became a focal point for Soviet active measures over the next four years, if you will. Now, the break point that came after those four years was the elevation of Mikhail Gorbachev in March 1985 to be General Secretary of the Communist Party and starting on a, a new and different, more reformist path. But let me just go back. So first, with regard to Afghanistan invasion, the Soviet active measures consisted of efforts to convince not only foreigners, but their own people, that this was a response to requests for fraternal assistance in Afghanistan, that Soviet troops were there doing nation-building effort, uh, you know, digging wells through villages and uh, things like that. But because the war expanded so quickly and the number of body bags went up, it was hard for the active measures to be effective. Active measures can be effective in smaller situations, if you will, but larger situations is hard. So, for example, just as with the fighting in eastern Ukraine, uh, the Soviets tried to hide the body bags and hide the burials of people and, and why they died from Afghanistan. But as the numbers of bodies grew too much, then they just couldn't sustain it. And as a result, uh, a group of mo- mothers and soldiers and Soviet Union was formed and became part of civil society. Later, um, this is an active measure, though, that the Russians continue to use in eastern Ukraine. They still pretend that there are no Soviet, no, no Russian forces there, only volunteers or um, people uh, on leave from the military. Uh, you know, might be uh, killed over there. But there's no official Russian involvement. Now, the Russians are not convincing uh, uh, the uh, West uh, that Russian troops are not there. This is propaganda, acting measures focused on Russians themselves. Just as in Afghanistan, the hiding of the body bags was not to convince Americans or Europeans, but it was to convince Soviet citizens of that. So a lesson learned from that was Afghanistan, if it gets too big, it's too hard to do. Second was the NATO decision with INF missiles, uh, sorry, intermediate range nuclear missiles called INF uh, missiles. Um, So when the NATO started deploying, the Soviets pretended that uh, at various times that they hadn't deployed anything, and then later (coughs) they became too hard to sustain so Brezhnev and Dropov would announce moratoria on deployments occasionally. Uh, and then in the West, of course, we had information about it. And so we went public to say, well, actually, there's no moratorium. The so we continue to deploy more uh, of these missiles. Um, but again, this was mainly for Soviet citizens to, to be confused, if you will, by Soviet uh, active measures the highest priority of the Soviet foreign policy and international propaganda, active measures establishment for those four years was to stop the NATO deployments. And they tried to do that in two ways. One, essentially, separating America from Europe. And secondly, picking on the more vulnerable countries in Europe and trying to separate them from others. So for example, Italy had agreed to deploy the. NATO cruise missiles. Uh, the Soviets saw Italy as a softer target because Cummings' party played a much greater role there. So they didn't think that they could stop Great Britain from deploying the missiles, but they targeted efforts on, on Italy and also on Germany. They thought Germany uh, was weak. Um, in the end, the active measures were not enough to stop the NATO deployments. And probably the single biggest foreign policy failure for the Soviet Union in that period was their failure to stop those deployments. Um, Afghanistan was the biggest failure. This is the second uh, biggest failure. And then with regard to um, the Reagan strategic buildup, so the buildup of US strategic or strategic means long range uh, systems. Um, <coughs> the Soviet Union made the argument that Ronald Reagan was a dangerous cowboy, that he was trigger happy on the nuclear trigger And so this helped stir up what was called in the US the nuclear freeze movement. And the freeze movement brought hundreds of thousands of people out into the streets and demonstrations for a period of time. At the same time, Soviet propagandists (coughs) in uh, Western Europe were able to help spur uh, these kinds of people. So there were hundreds of thousands of people demonstrating in European cities against the NATO-INF deployments and in the United States against Reagan's strategic uh, build-up. Neither worked. So the Reagan buildup continued and the NATO systems ended up being deployed. Partly because of those failures, but other failures, and again, Afghanistan was probably number one, um, or maybe the, the diminishing economy. Listen, the economy failure was number one, Afghanistan number two, the failure on the nuclear activities in Europe and US probably number three. But at the end of this period, the end of 1984, where we had a succession of decrepit Soviet leaders, one after the other: Brezhnev for a long time, then Andropov off for a while, then Chernenko. Uh, <clears throat> as Ronald Reagan said, they kept dying on me, so I didn't have a chance to meet them. Um, the Soviet Union realized, the Soviet leadership realized, it was overextended, uh, as to use a Soviet phrase a correlation of forces, that the correlation of forces had moved against them so much, so the economy was bankrupt, they were having trouble feeding their people, they were importing a lot of uh, U.S. grain, uh, for example, until the Afghan invasion and Jimmy Carter banned that, although Reagan lifted the ban after he came into office, but they couldn't feed their people. They were losing the war in Afghanistan, or at least not winning it. Um, and then in Europe, uh, they were just unsuccessful in persuading Europeans to turn against the United States or turn against each other. So as the correlation of forces moved against them, active measures played a key role in each of those three activities, but they weren't strong enough, they weren't effective enough to reverse the correlation of forces. And so the Soviets then had to change, they had to find some way to accommodate the changing correlation of forces. When Gorbachev came to power, his number one goal was to reduce the military confrontation with the West because he needed to reduce military spending and put more into the economy. He tried various erratic reforms to do that, they failed. Um, and then the Soviet Union collapsed. The Soviet Union collapsed in part because the Soviet Union waited too long to undertake reform measures. They were too erratic. And that they, uh, and the third factor was they had overextended themselves needlessly going into Afghanistan at a time when the economy was already bad. So you can see in this broader picture, active measures play the key role, but it's just not strong enough in some circumstances. In others, it may be stronger. So let's take the current situation right now. People in the Kremlin believe that Russian active measures helped tip the balance for the Brexit vote last June in the United Kingdom. Today, they believe that Russian active measures helped tip the balance for Trump's victory in the United States. The third big target, most likely, will be the French presidential election next year. They will be supporting a friendly candidate, could be Marie Le Pen or Sarkozy. Um, and they hope to be able to use active measures. So, in their perception, active measures are an asymmetric tool. They're a tool that the weak use against the strong. But at the margin, they sometimes can have uh, some influence, as they did with the nuclear freeze movement, which you know caused the Reagan administration quite a lot of problems. Uh, and they, of course, think they've been successful most recently. So let me just start there, those are a few examples, and turn to Chris. Thanks, Bill.
1: So yeah, everything old is new again. So tired and tried models central in Soviet practice, uh, uh, Maskirovka, obfuscation, deception, confusion in all things, and active measures in the form of propaganda, old playbook, New information technology, new information environments, perhaps new and surprising levels of effectiveness. Uh, What's changed since the 80s? Well, we've got the internet. We've got hundreds of channels, more languages, more global interconnectivity, more, a great deal more signal and noise. In an information environment with very limited signal, it's harder for something that is false to have too much impact. Where you have lots of signals and lots of noise, maybe it's harder to distinguish. So part of the narrative is, how did we prevail over the Soviets? Well, we had truth on our side. and where they were engaged in active measures that were deceptive and manipulative, we had Radio Free Europe and Voice of America, which always said what was actually happening. And while there were technical efforts to block those transmissions, when they leaked through, the Russian people believed them, and the peoples of, of Eastern Europe believed them. And so I was raised on an influence and persuasion model that says that credibility is king, that the truth always wins. But looking at the last couple years of Russian propaganda, and the way in which they were able to partially but sufficiently obfuscate what was occurring in the Crimea during the early days of their efforts to annex Crimea and perhaps as far back as, as 2008 in Georgia and other kinds of activities that they have been engaging in. It's clear that falsehood seems to be effective. How effective? It's hard to say exactly. It's hard to say exactly. but. Certainly less effective than they would like, and more effective than we would like. So, as part of my research with my colleague Dr. Miriam Matthews, we investigated why Russian propaganda might be effective. And the foundation of our research was to distill four core characteristics of contemporary Russian propaganda, their propaganda model, if you will. So, I will share these four features with you now. First, Russian propaganda is high volume and multi channel. They invest considerably. RT, formerly Russia Today, a, and I have to use air quotes here, a news network, an infotainment network that sometimes includes high-quality investigative journalism and sometimes reports things that just aren't so and often has spin associated with either stories of those kind. That's just one example, and RT's in five or six different languages, claims to be one of the... The most often visited news websites on the, interne- on the internet. Uh, they have other acknowledged Russian su- sources and sites and channels, and other unacknowledged proxy sites, sites that are sponsored by Russia but don't advertise that affiliation. And they have a lot of them. And it's not just formal news broadcast sites, it's also hosts of informal blogs and participants in various internet forums and chat boards in fact i'm sure you've all seen the articles disclosing the russian troll houses the troll factories where they have shift work three shifts a day 24 hours a day more than one facility where there are paid internet commenters who are given a quota of posts to make in a variety of different languages and a number of themes themes they are trying to support and themes they are trying to undermine and active participation so high high-volume, and multi-channel. Second, Russian propaganda is rapid, continuous, and repetitive. So it's easier to do when you're in lots of channels. If you're not worried about telling the truth, it's very easy to be the first to report on an event, or non-event, as the case may be. Uh, And if you have thousands of paid trolls whose full-time job is commenting on internet forums, they can be there a lot, and they can participate at great great volume and great extent. So it's not too surprising that these two things would lend effectiveness to a propaganda effort, having lots of propaganda and being constant and continuous, drumbeat, if you will. What is surprising is this third feature, the fact that Russian propaganda makes no commitment to objective reality. It's not all true, it's not all false, but it's not committed to the truth nor worried about being committed to the truth. And again, everything that I was taught growing up in influence and con- uh, persuasion and communication was that credibility was king, not that you could make up your own facts. And then finally, Russian propaganda makes no commitment to consistency. Even uh, the, the different channels and modes are not necessarily deconflicted. Different speakers are not necessarily consistent. Um, case in point. Vladimir Putin first said, oh no, I have no designs on Crimea and then said, well, yeah, I I intended to annex Crimea all along. No, no, the little green men are not Russian soldiers. Yeah, yeah, they are mine. (laughs) So why? Why is that okay? Why did that work out? Why did that work out? So we looked at the literature on social psychology and explored the pros and cons for credibility and persuasion for each of those four features. So considering high volume and multi-channel, Gee, that that works. There's lots of research that shows that the number and frequency of persuasive messages increases their persuasiveness. Uh, Multiple arguments from multiple sources is persuasive. The single most persuasive thing in persuasive communication is receiving a message from someone like me. So whoever you are, the most persuasive way, the most effective way to persuade you is to have a voice, someone like me. Well, if you're Russia and you have all kinds of trolls managing all kinds of false personas, what are the odds that one of those personas is something like someone they want to influence? And if they accept, if a member of an audience accepts that persona as being like them, then they're much more likely to accept whatever that persona is presenting as persuasive. G. rapid, continuous, and repetitive. Again, not too surprising if these are features that are persuasive. Again and again and again in the research on social psychology we see that the first message is often the most persuasive. The first, again air quotes, the first facts presented to you become your baseline facts. And it is very difficult to dislodge those facts. So much so that there's a a great deal of research on retractions and refutations suggesting that they pretty much aren't effective. That if someone receives a message and they believe it, then it's very hard to dislodge that information. Uh, further So let's let's turn to so, so again, volume, drumbeat, rapidity. You're not surprised that this is persuasive. Let's turn to the one that hopefully you are surprised by. No commitment to credibility, falsehood. When would falsehood be compelling? Well, in some ways it supports some of these other things. It's much easier to be first if you're not bothering with fact-checking. Further, it's, there are other psychological factors in play. People are cognitively lazy. We use what are called uh, uh, some, some various different, different shortcuts, uh, mental heuristics, uh, simplistic cues. For example, if you look at a broadcast, and it looks like television news. There's an anchor. The background has newsy-looking backgrounds. There's a a ticker at the bottom that is showing some kind of rolling information. The anchor is speaking, and his or her accent is a a perfectly crisp, clear American English accent. You're likely to mentally recognize this from these these simple cues as, oh, that is news. the facts that are being presented on this broadcast are probably factual because that's what we're cued to be. Well, that's exactly what RT looks like. Some of the time, RT is presenting quality journalism and factual material, and sometimes they're making it up. What else in terms of of falsehood and, and, and objective reality? Well, gee, evidence is persuasive, whether the presentation of evidence is persuasive. Whether or not it's factual evidence doesn't matter all that much. And then, of course, there's the the power of first. Once evidence is, is in place, it's very difficult to, to uh, retract it. And part of that is because of how people store information. Even if you recognize, something as coming from an uncredible source. So you as a human receive information. Here is the, the factoid and here is the source. At the time that you receive that information, you may say, oh, I have been told that RT is not a truthful source. I don't believe this factoid. Factoid not true. And you store both of those pieces of information in your memory banks. Well, in recall, those two pieces of information, factoid source of factoid was RT, which isn't credible, may have become separated, likely to have become separated unless it's something actually important to you. And so you may remember the fact that RT isn't credible, but you may remember this other factoid. I've heard that somewhere, and you may not remember that it came from RT. And so you may believe it, and and it may be difficult to dislodge that belief. Now, what about no commitment to consistency? Well, the good news is there's nothing in the psychology research that suggests that being inconsistent is persuasive. So that actually undermines credibility, not being consistent. Unfortunately, it doesn't undermine credibility as much as you might hope that it does. So even though not being consistent doesn't help Russian persuasiveness, it does enable some of these other factors. If you're not worried about being consistent, it, it allows you to be more rapid and more continuous and higher volume and think instead about U.S. government information efforts, where there's always a thoughtful effort to deconflict, to avoid what we call information fratricide. So we don't have one spokesperson saying one thing and another spokesperson saying something that contradicts that. That takes effort, that takes time, that takes energy. That is, time and energy the Russians are not spending. Sure, sometimes they contradict themselves. Sometimes they have information fratricide. Sometimes they have the same speaker saying different things on different days. doesn't matter. They're just throwing it at the wall and seeing what sticks by trying lots of different things in high volume. They choose the messages and themes and narratives that resonate, and then they echo those with a bunch of different competing voices. So disappointingly, from my perspective anyway, and surprisingly, this. This Russian propaganda model, based on these four characteristics, is more effective than I would like it to be. So, of course, that turns to what should we do about it? So, what should we do about it? Well, I've called this the fire hose of falsehood. So, if you'll forgive me, I will now torture this water and hose metaphor. So, the the first admonition is that. When countering the fire hose of falsehood, one should not expect to counter it with the squirt gun of truth. Just has to do with with volume, right? If, if Russia is spending millions and millions of dollars to flood a wide range of media with false information, a few official spokesperson on a few official channels claiming that that isn't so isn't going to get the job done. There should be no expectation that that's actually going to do it. Second, what can we do to put raincoats on those at whom the fire hose is directed? I told you I was going to torture this hose metaphor a little bit. But in fact, the research in psychology suggests that forewarning can be effective. Well, refutation is not. If Someone makes a, a claim that isn't true, and then someone later says that wasn't true, that has minimal impact on people's, the extent to which people are persuaded by that first message. If instead someone says, so and so is about to tell you a lie, be on guard, and then someone says something, you're much more likely to have active, conscious thoughts, scrutinize what they're saying, and if there's any hint that it might be false, you will accept it, oh, that's false, and you will not be persuaded. Better, once you've avoided that once, you have a self-promotional reactance and are more immune to it. So what does that suggest that we ought to do? There's a certain amount of, of uh, truth-telling that has to happen, right? When, when a foreign government or agents of a foreign power make false statements, the representatives of our government have to say that's not so. They have to tell the truth. But they shouldn't expect that to work. When you counter propaganda, you don't do it just by saying that's not so. But instead, in these truth-telling moments, perhaps they would be more effective if instead of trying to refute the last thing, inoculate against the next thing. Uh, Third, don't point your flow of information directly back up the fire hose. It's not a... A squirting contest and if it is we'll lose our fire hose isn't as big our fire hose We don't have a fire hose We have a a much more modest truth projector or sprayer or whatever and it's it's committed to truth It has a bunch of processes behind it. It's not on as many channels. It's more constrained. It, It can't go directly back upstream so What what do I mean by that? What does that suggest? Well, instead of trying to counter the propaganda by attacking the propaganda itself I I urge those that engage in this space to think about countering the effect of the propaganda. What are the Russians accomplishing with their firehose of falsehood? Are they undermining confidence in NATO in Latvia? Maybe they are. And if they are, if that's one of the effects they're trying to achieve, and that's an effect that we care about, and I would think that we and our NATO allies would care about that, then how do you counter that? by bolstering confidence in NATO, in Latvia. How do you do that? Do you do that by countering their disinformation? Not necessarily, maybe you do it by a range of exercises or some kind of positive promotional informational campaign. And finally, my final torturing of the fire hose metaphor, let's put some kinks in the hose. One example of this is moment Ambassador Courtney and I came up with. Uh, gee, the Department of State has a number of different lists that it publishes annually, lists of countries that violate human rights, lists of countries that don't respect religious freedom or don't respect the rights of women. How about we publish a list of foreign propaganda sources? This would be a highly contentious list, and that very contention would serve to elevate the discussion about it, which would serve a forewarning function. And it might help there to be some kind of some statutory or regulatory efforts against some of these channels. Uh, it can work. The British Office Ofcom, Office of Communication, has sanctioned RT on a number of occasions for not adhering to certain journalistic standards. And that has Caused some consternation in RT, some hand wringing. They don't like being sanctioned like that. And and candidly, these OFCOM sanctions have been pretty toothless. It's really just a slap on the wrist. But they don't like being slapped on the wrist. Things that are more than a slap on the wrist might be even more consequential. And other ways to put kinks in the hose when when you're in a in a defense context in an area of declared hostilities, there are technical means by which channels might be turned off or minimized or other things. But I think. For a steady state environment, working more within legal and regulatory frameworks, more likely to be positive. And those are the marks, remarks that I have. Ambassador Cordy, do you have any final closing right. thoughts or should we open things up to questions? Sure. Thanks.
0: The three, the three folks that you, you cite are, are all distinguished uh, experts. Um, I think there are a wide variety of perspectives. Uh, and let me cite, cite my favorite one. We all think favorably of George Kennan for the containment doctrine, providing us an intellectual foundation after World War II for our strategy. For dealing with the Soviet Union, Kennan also opposed the creation of NATO. In the mid-1990s, he opposed the expansion of NATO. So, an expert can be thoughtful and really have some deep perspectives on a variety of issues, but you know sometimes those those views may be of one kind and and sometimes another. There's a a fairly wide consensus in Washington in the foreign policy establishment that NATO expansion was the right thing to do, that the United States and our allies in NATO uh, were prudent in bringing in Eastern European countries and the Baltics uh, because it helped stabilize them, helped reassure them, and security was vitally important for their political development. So the number one goal for the United States is not necessarily to have good relations with Russia. Number one goal is to serve our, our broader security, political, and economic interests. Uh, in my view, we did that with NATO expansion. I think even today in Washington, NATO expansion is probably one of those issues in which the consensus uh, of support is about as broad as on any other foreign policy issue.
1: And, and so just to follow up on that, without speaking specifically about any of the individuals that you named, there there are scholars of certain contexts that get sucked into that context and have a very nu- nuanced understanding. But there's the the phrase, I think, fairly common at Department of State and other other places that send representatives abroad but there's concern that that representative goes native and understands the context so richly and fully that they they appreciate it perhaps just a little too much. and There are other things that Russia has done to manipulate expertise. Now, we didn't get into an exhaustive list of the kinds of things that are part of contemporary active measures and propaganda, but there have been a number of instances when a distinguished scholar has been surprised to learn that A book that they have not written has been published in Russian Uh, also there's a there's a thing in propaganda studies called a useful idiot when I first heard that I was surprised I thought it was kind of pejorative I said we can't we can't write about that but then I there were a whole bunch of articles written about useful idiots and that's someone who is indigenous to the other context they're part of the target audience but you convince or persuade them that that to believe something that isn't true and then they echo that for you and they're much more persuasive because they speak the language and have some credential or expertise in that context and that's a that's a the the mobilization of useful idiots is also part of uh, russian contemporary propaganda uh, uh, <coughs> efforts. Well,
2: oh, okay. Uh, well, so, but, uh, the question is uh, <coughs> basically going back to what was discussed. Many of those um, very respected uh, people with the standard knowledge of the area um, received directly on indirectly money from Russia. For example, I don't know if it was a big city the, uh, that the office, they said that the Kissinger Associates received money from Russia. Now, there are two former senators, one, from, one of the public and one Democrat, who so are very active in uh, the world's campaign environment, campaign against the which is also, as far as I know, it's funded by that. So we would be helpful instead of you know, arguing about the, the right or wrong just to say where they get money from. And so I have, actually, I have another question you were talking about uh, the domestic audience of the Russian propaganda impact. Uh, My I used to work with the Russian nation and I know people always take the status of this work now. And I would say it's pretty good to And one of the reasons is because um, the Americans who work there and who basically language which is very efficient here when we use all politically correct mm-hmm. it sounds translated into any of those languages it sounds like a caricature it makes look as unique and uh, what would be a much better idea is to recruit about vast of pakistani americans arab americans ukrainian americans russian americans who are quite loyal to this country Know the language and the tradition, and freedom in arguing on behalf of the United States, in arguing for the native audience in the native language, using the, the arguments in the language which would be understood by very well there, but not our here. And I sort mm-hmm. of
1: well, thank you. I think that's a, a great point and a, and a reasonable observation, and, and I think that. Folks at uh, at BBG try to do that, although uh, but 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 maybe they're not they're not doing as well as they should be. Another barrier that they face in their broadcasting is their number of channels and number of reporters and volume is similar to what it was in the 80s. Whereas in Russia, the volume of domestic media has grown, and that's something that that Ambassador Courtney mentioned in the mm-hmm. 80s that the primary <coughs> audience was the domestic Russian audience. To this day, I mean, it continues. I didn't mention that, but the, the balance of contemporary propaganda heavily is heavily slated towards legitimizing within their domestic audience. The difference is there's this huge volume. So whereas in the 80s, Radio Free Europe was one channel, and if you could get it, it was one channel of four. Whereas now, you, if you can get it, it's one channel of 4,000. And if if... 3,500 of those channels are a constant drumbeat of not quite true Russian jingoistic nationalists recalling the the former heyday of empire and some other kinds of, of themes. And then there's one channel that may not have particularly compelling idiom, even though it's probably true. How, how does that compete? A signal to noise ratio problem.
0: Uh, let me just say something in defense of RFERL. Uh, which I've known and worked with a long time, Um, the issue of the balance of what in the RFE-RL lexicon is called unleashing the, the native speakers, if you will, versus control by USIA or public diplomacy officers to be sure that things are politically more correct. That issue has gone on for; uh, it's been a live issue for a very long time, as you know. After the um, Soviet invasion of Hungary, um, you know, there were questions about whether RFE-RL not, uh, you know, had, or rfe know had actually gone too far to encourage Hungarians uh, believing that there might be um, some greater support if they rebelled, uh, and there were a, no- a number of arguments. Uh, made on on both sides of that issue over the years. Uh, But U.S. government has to kind of be fairly careful and and not not have things that turn out to be false or skewed on the radios go forward. So the balance isn't always struck. Um, I (coughs) contributed to the U.S. government's problems in 1986, I think it was. At one point, I was in the State Department. Uh, <coughs> RFE/RL broadcast something referring to General Jaruzelski uh, with a word I don't recall what it was, but it was um, it was a pretty harsh word. Uh, and so we had to issue some press guidance, and I inserted in the press guidance that we regretted this this happened, and it turned out that I had, uh, by doing that, implying, implied that the US government had some control over RFE-RL, and this was contrary to the sort of canons of rfe But it's an example of the delicacy of this relationship between political correctness and, and having the radios be as effective as they can.
1: And, and to extend on, on that thought, we are captive of our own values, and this is a good thing. Notice that while we observe that the fire hose of falsehood is effective, one of the solutions to that was not get out our own fire hose of falsehood. That's that's not an acceptable solution. This is one of those situations where we cannot defeat our opponents by becoming them. We need to stick to our values. We're just disadvantaged. In certain kinds of we can't go head to head with the fire hose of falsehood with the squirt gun of truth. It doesn't mean that we need to abandon our, our processes and our commitment to the mm-hmm. truth. It just means we need to find different ways to maximize the effectiveness mm-hmm. of that.
0: Uh, let me also just offer a, a small encouragement um, there are podcasts now on RFERL. One of the, the best is called The Power Vertical about politics in Russia. Brian Whitmore hosts that from, from Prague. There are a number of gas academics and others. This is in English. Uh, it comes out mostly every Friday. Um, if you're interested in Russian politics, I encourage you to, to listen to it. It's, it's really terrific. Uh, it's in English. So it's not, not for a Russian audience. Yeah, uh, let's see.
2: Block uh, I couldn't help but be struck by uh, the four pillars at this point about the Russian propaganda having been uh, adopted wholesale in American uh, political campaign uh, recently. But to your issue of forewarning, which is an extraordinarily effective way of gathering uh, propaganda within our own value system, um, and anticipating more flyovers and politics. whatever the next. What level should the forewarning foreshadowing the uh, mm. first mm. step in, in, in public relations it was actually about it that you tell it first, you tell it all, you tell it now. Right. Mm. So if we are to say something first to forewarn, from what level should it come? That it address that, if you would. What, at what level does credibility
0: rest as it comes first? That's a great question. Let me just a quick sure. So before we get into that, okay, in January 1981, days after his inauguration, President Ronald Reagan showed the way to do what you're talking about when he said that the Soviet leaders, quote, reserve unto themselves the right to commit any crime, to lie, to cheat in order to further their cause. So that was a form of forewarning and it was done at the highest levels It wasn't a response to a particular shot out of the hose. It was rather forewarning about the kinds of measures, preemptive, exactly. Sorry, Chris.
1: Great, great point. And so I think the answer has to be as at many levels as possible. Uh, It would be great if media, foreign and domestic, started to pick up and be (coughs) critical of Russian sources of disinformation and to undermine the credibility of uncredible sources. It would be great if State Department, from the secretary to the various public diplomacy uh, elements, if, if they had this list and, and made noise about it. It would be great if the president and the president-elect called out certain actors, certain propaganda sources, and pointed out that, gee, they're false. There's all kinds of, of falsehood going on. Uh, I work and do research in the information operations strategic communication public diplomacy space and a couple of years ago, when I started looking into Russian propaganda, I was embarrassed at how little I knew. Me, not just an informed citizen, but someone who claimed some expertise in this space, and how much more there was in, in European press and in NATO and Allied reporting that I was unaware of. And I thought, well, wow, if, that's, if that's me, what does the average American citizen know about this? Almost nothing. Why is that? who is not doing their job? Why isn't this more broadly advertised? So things, th- things that can help in forewarning are broader advertisement about this.
0: Let's go to the back of the room. There's so one hand there. I have the sense <laughs> that in the last two years <laughs> that awareness
2: of what's happening in the last great in the industry, but it definitely feels
0: Yeah, the Active Measures Working Group was an interagency activity in the 1980s. Uh, it was quite effective in coordinating various parts of the United States government. USAA, US Information Agency at that time was um, separate from the, the Department of State in Washington, although in country teams, in embassies around the world, they're all right together. Um, there are other agencies of the federal government, including the Defense Department, for example, uh, which uh, uses the phrase strategic communications, which is somewhat analogous to public diplomacy in the State Department's uh, lexicon. So, the Active Measures Working Group did bring a variety of, of folks together and both amplified and coordinated the counteractive measures uh, activity. The willingness of President Reagan um, to stand forward on these things, to Give speeches to stand at the Berlin Wall and say, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall." These gave a political top cover to our counteractive measures efforts of a kind that really no other president has ever uh, has ever done. Um, so it really made them a lot more effective. Uh, let's see, it was a hand way, way in the back, way far, farther back. There. Yeah. So in the early '90s, the media freedom in Russia, or the extent of media freedom in Russia, was unprecedented in Russian or Soviet history. Uh, people sometimes, in the late '90s, in the late Perestroika period, and early '90s, uh, would go home and watch debates in Parliament on television, and it was it was more captivating than than what we call reality television here uh, now. Uh, wide audiences, great educational measure. So propaganda was much was less strong, uh, wasn't well-funded at that time because the Russian <coughs> government didn't have many resources. Uh, and as a result, there was a much richer discussion of activities in Russia uh, compared to today when the state controls all the national television networks, many, if not most, of the national newspapers. Uh, it's a very different world then
1: and uh, to speak to your second question about russian propaganda in a in a notional future post-putin world i think enough of the russian intelligentsia and policy apparatus has seen the effectiveness and there's been enough writing uh, the the gerasimov doctrine the the recognition of of benefits of hybrid war and asymmetrical conflict that the the tenor might change. We might see fewer memes of Putin bare chested riding a bear, uh, but I don't think that that unless something else significant has changed in the information environment that they would turn off the fire hose of falsehood. Uh,
0: the back corner there.
2: or in Spanish, and for you, not Spanish. Uh, but you didn't have that much influence, mostly because if they get lost in North, they are feed the moon, or they'll feed in Spanish,
1: That's a good question. I haven't looked at that specifically uh, about the the future of the the BBG and its various channels. Uh, I suspect that what Russia has modeled, other countries will begin to follow, and that if we don't do something to make our information efforts more robust, uh, as we note in our our op-ed, we will continue to be behind the curve. Uh, And I think there's a number of different perspectives on this. I've heard some suggest that we have a a tremendous untapped reserves of soft power, that everyone all over the world still wants Levi jeans, and that that, uh, our cultural exports, our music, our television, our television entertainment, these are all still very compelling, uh, but how how that relates to or connects to willful misinformation and countering or countering its effects, I'm not sure. So that's a good question. Thank you. Cool. Uh, it seems a little
2: bit
0: He is at the apex of the active measures uh, undertaking of the Russian government. Um, he, too, apparently is a vulnerable from what we've seen in the media in the last couple of weeks. uh, Apparently, Ukrainians somehow penetrated his email system and revealed some things. Um, The best thing we can do to deal with what Zirkov and the others is to have an intelligent program to counter the effects of active measures uh, generally with the kinds of activities that that Chris has discussed. Uh, A fully funded RFERL activity. Uh, Voice of America as well. In the context of dealing with the Islamic State, uh, the US Department of State and others in the federal government have developed greater capabilities to use social media to for counter radicalization activities, for example, to reduce the risk and consequence of Islamic State uh, use of social media to radicalize lone wolves or sleeper cells. Uh, that um, experience and technology um, was developed for that sp- specific purpose, uh, but the question exists whether some of those lessons learned perhaps should be applied or some of those technologies should be applied uh, to a greater extent in countries where um, free media are less Present, I don't know the extent to which that's happening, but I imagine that uh, a lot of people are working in that area. There's a bunch of theorizing
1: and strategizing and thinking and studying going on in the think tanks, in the Department of Defense, uh, recognizing the challenges posed by not just theory but practice of gray zone aggression and nonlinear warfare and thinking about how to counter that. And I suspect that the next couple of years will bring forth a host of monograph and reports and productive thinking about how to do that. And then there'll be some, some policy decisions, some experimentation, and some catching up, and some competition in that space. Well, let's Great. Sure. So that's that's an interesting example. So we have the, the shoot down of, of MH17. We know looking back that all of the facts suggest that it was Eastern Ukrainian separatists armed with anti-aircraft weapons provided by the Russians. When it happened, there was the uncertainty of the immediate event. And so this is where a lack of commitment to objective reality comes to your advantage. Something has happened. Whether you know what has happened or not, you can you can make up something. You can say, oh, the government of Ukraine did this. Oh, NATO did this. And you can try a bunch of different things to obfuscate and begin to muddy the waters. You can't inoculate specifically against that because you didn't know that was coming. So my my advice would be to, when you do your truth-telling, when you refute the false claims made about NH-17, you say, hey, here are the facts, here's what actually happened, here's what's been said, here's who said it, that's your truth-telling, you have to do that as a, as a government spokesman, then turn it towards the next time. Gee, these sources seem to come up with these kinds of fallacious rush- rushes to judgments based on thin or no evidence repeatedly. I would be very skeptical the next time that rt broadcast anything about military operations in eastern europe use use your refutation for two purposes one the pro forma effort to refute what has gone before and as forewarning of the next time because you're right you can't you can't get in front of something that you don't know that's going to happen some emerging episode or event worse is things that are totally manufactured i think it was 2014 there was a whole bunch of social media and then some news reporting about this giant chemical plume at a factory in Louisiana. It never happened. It was basically a weapons test. The Russians tried out their ability. They, they built a bunch of imagery, and then they tried out all their different channels to see if they could create a panic or create some kind of credibility around this event, and they pretty much were able to. You can't Forewarn against that because the the range of possible things that they could do is virtually unlimited, and you can't you can't warn against everything.
0: Um, first, let me say, for those of you who don't know Ross Johnson, we have never met. Ross is a legendary figure uh, in the um, pantheon of great people who've been through rfe uh, over the years. Very widely known and respected. Let's make a short comparison between the shootdown of KL 007 in September 1983 and MH17. In some sense, both were black swan events. Uh, they were more uncertainty than risk, so to speak. But in the case of KL 007, while the Japanese provided some of the tapes uh, for the, the fighter pilot conversation, uh, that tended to be a U.S. Soviet standoff, if you will, and Soviet you used use a lot of propaganda to try to argue um, that it wasn't responsible for shooting down a civilian passenger liner, but uh, actually a spy plane. In the case of MH17, it's not US versus Russia. It turns out the Europeans, of course, took the lead, <coughs> and the Dutch have had these very careful investigations over several years, um, which look like they're not rushes to judgment, but really credible investigations that's been quite effective uh, actually. The Dutch have convinced quite a few people didn't happen right away but MH17 has been uh, a net disaster uh, for um, Russia and is a key reason why Europeans so strongly support sanctions on Russia because of their aggression in uh, eastern Ukraine uh, and Crimea. You may recall, when the Europeans first imposed sanctions in the spring of um, 2014, after the the invasion of eastern Ukraine, that the Europeans agreed to have sanctions only for six months and then they would have to renew them every six months. Uh, There was speculation that Europeans would not continue to do that, that there would be business pressures in Europe on governments to, to force them to back away from the sanctions. Two and a half years later, what's happened? Because of MH17 and, and some other things, including the Russian um, military activity in Syria, um, the issue of the sanctions really isn't being debated anymore in Europe. The European consensus is pretty strong on those sanctions. So another, again, it's another example where active measures can play a role, but if reality intervenes in two great away, active measures are not enough to achieve the goals that the Kremlin might have for them. Sometimes truth does win. <laughs> yeah. I don't know enough about French politics to give you an intelligent answer, <coughs> but let me just offer a couple thoughts. During that period, 1980 to 84, that I discussed earlier, although the French were not deploying NATO INF missiles, François Mitterrand was one of the strongest advocates of NATO taking a firm posture toward the Soviet S-20 And this came as a shock the Kremlin because Francois Mitterrand was a socialist but yet he was very strong fast forward to today what happened a couple of weeks ago when Russian aircraft and Syrian aircraft shot up hospitals in eastern Aleppo and targeted other civilians Francois Hollande a socialist went up online the most senior European leader to do so to charge that Russia may be guilty uh, should be prosecuted for war crimes. So the ability of the Kremlin to manipulate politics in France um, is not um, not always um, the the best. The French are very humanistic. They have strong principles, uh, and they showed that 35 years ago, and they seem to be showing that today. See. Yeah. Thank you.
2: I suppose when it's engaged in just the sort of shenanigans that you've been promoting to do with it. Whether Armenia is engaged in a search for truth or not, maybe we was demonstrated in the event of the Iraq War, when three out of four Americans came to believed that Iraq was resolved in 9-11. So don't you think there's a little bit of a for more truth forms out of our own media?
1: Sure the golden age of journalism has passed. Uh, journalism isn't what it used to be and is is more partisan. But there's an important distinction to be drawn between partisan domestic media and foreign meddling. And this will sound glib, but I don't mean it to be. Uh, Americans lying to Americans is part of our political process. Foreigners lying to Americans is not. And in as much as we may not like the former, it's part of the process, but I think we need to gird ourselves and take steps to prevent the
0: But Let me just offer a thought in the last couple of days now. So for a good while, because it looked like Hillary Rodham Clinton might be elected president, the Russian propagandists and anti-measures have been going out of their way to impugn the integrity, the quality of our electoral process and our politics. Uh, On September 18, Russia had a Duma election, and for the first time, there's not a single oppositionist in the Duma. Russians know they don't really have honest elections, but it seemed for the last month or two that a key goal of Russian propaganda uh, was to show that the elections over here are, you know, not really honest. They're rigged, as uh, some said, and uh, not very effective. Confused, vulnerable to cyber attack. But then Donald Trump won. Now suddenly, the Russian propagandists are having to reverse course to admit that, you know, the election worked. <laughs> you know, a person was chosen in a valid process. This is a little this flip flop is a little reminiscent of the conundrum that the Soviets faced in the nineteen sixty election between Kennedy and Nixon. It was hard to argue how rigged it was because they couldn't figure out who was going to win. It was a surprise. So they had to they had to dance around and in the end they looked club footed just as now in the last week or two. Any Russian who reads the uh, newspapers or watches television in Russia says wait a minute, the system, has been, the, the government has been saying that everything is rigged over here and then suddenly Donald Trump was elected. So the government maybe was not telling the truth about U.S. elections being rigged. <laughs>
3: And uh the and that's which is because Russian is what which is has nothing to do
2: with
3: the English, French, Spanish and It's uh, my question here is very interesting. You mentioned there are And he explains <laughs> that Russia has <laughs> no for any operational anything and tries to fight the three that we actually work on and uh discuss and analyze and the government the triangle that was created that was created. we're talking about Russians the Russians uh were for uh, their own. of putting weight went to 90 percent and that was uh after operation the Eastern, Eastern, uh, and uh, I think that Russia operated by this is the country that doesn't have allies we have allies they don't so for them to the create one thing Is done with great, great of the life, and so Putin is working extensively on the board. So his major audience is to collect those allies. Who pretty much more And so maybe consider the meaning uh, his major origin somewhere, not want to So How much Russia is in control armies, and they are also in the new model of armies. It's a armies all use. But um, that is extremely effective. They are using foreign media, they are, are funding foreign media, so they are funding foreign governments, projects in President Obama's library. So, all of this is information operation, which is really non linear, I think that's privately controlled, whatever it is. It's a great zone. And i like to the comment there, that I'm just very much impressed with them. They're using multiple tactics. And every day there was such tactics For example, they create, they create an incident of Crimean terrorist ter- incident to bring 100,000 troops to Crimea and make it a vesture. Then they will create 300 marines moving to Norway, and now they are screaming that this is the war, and they are bringing thousands of the people to vote. So we are using our sources of information which we supply for them to use in their own interest. And are we doing anything about that? Are we looking into that area that we actually provide that? For example, the latest one, the three hundred we had it, Three hundred Russia so much that Russia is bringing three hundred ships into the boat. Um so the target audience Amount of money spent in France too, and of course to attract American investment, just do that something. There's no other way to And life. so all of these things, if they are analyzed properly, they're getting the so message that they didn't do anything, or they did something to confuse us. So all of this is there are any research or any statistics or any like ongoing? to effectively found a which is, I don't believe really it's a narrative, it's a narrative we've already found. And um, Putin is firehousing all of the information on the humanitarian support the after, and they have given 25 different explanations, some predicting each day, at the same time, they are doing whatever they are doing. So, owning That was in English and Spanish and in Russian. So, all of this is an analysis, one accumulated that we can uh, read and retrieve something and create our own messages. Because I was surprised when they closed the bank to Britain. and There was I'm
1: no too, yeah. I was surprised too. I was
3: surprised that it was done immediately and uh, there was no Russian information in Russia. But a lot of information. Hollywood was against it. The freedom of speech was. There was no even Russians discussing the event. Everybody who was against it, oh, that's their fault, that's the war on the freedom of speech. Why did Brits did that? So, so they said so this is alternative information. And I started looking for the facts. How many Brits are actually listening to our team? Our is tea, giving very sophisticated version of truth. They provide 93 true information and seven non-true like when you were with Dolland you could you know the orange the
2: mustache to
1: Benjamin was phenomenal there was a question in my yeah so so a bunch of very interesting observations uh yeah i mean it's 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 worse than you suggest I and mean there's there's lots of obfuscation going on lots of different kinds of action uh, so what are what are we doing about it? Are there are there statistics? Are there reports? Not that I have seen yet, but I know again, I know there's lots of effort going on in the think tanks. There's a bunch of preliminary studies on gray zone conflict, uh, some of which have been done by my RAND colleagues that that are pretty good as places to start. But there's there's certainly more to be done, and I hope that we can make more progress in this area. One of the things that I'd like to highlight about what you just said is the danger of mirror imaging and the danger of assuming that others see us the way we see us. So a different topic, but Chinese information warfare. The Chinese now advertise that they have three warfares: legal warfare, public opinion warfare, psychological warfare. The scary thing is you read closely They think they learned it from us. We don't think so. We don't think like that. But perhaps we collectively need to think more about what the things we do look like to them, what their perspective is, especially the perspective of a Russian man on the street who's been fed a daily dose of propaganda since since very early in his or her youth and then to to see news about marines in the near abroad of course that that necessitates a defensive response if they if they have this strong domestic narrative about being under pressure and needing to protect themselves and then we enable that narrative by doing things that appear threatening or are portrayed as threatening even if we intend them to be reassuring to our allies or maybe Maybe sometimes we do intend them to be threatening. Like, hey, we have the ability to project force here, so behave yourself. But often, while recognizing that actions speak louder than words, we don't always put the words with our actions to make clear what the message we're trying to send is. Uh, We need to be better.
2: an active measure of exercise or effort fails because of the is efficacy level after the once people believe that they get fully um are they harder than to bring back see to think is there a way that to do that
1: so I've done a bunch of research at RAND on how to measure inform influence and persuade efforts <laughs> Now, all of my efforts and and study of methods has been oriented towards our persuasion efforts inside of programs that we know about, know all the details of and know the goals of how can you, when you design that program, set it up so you can tell whether it's effective or not. Looking at someone else's efforts and figuring out how effective it is, is a different methodological kettle of fish. I think sometimes it's possible, but it requires a lot of effort. You gotta identify what they've done. And the trickiest part is, and unless you've got really good human or other kinds of inside sources, figuring out why they've did it, done it. What were they actually trying to achieve? So sometimes it's it's fairly obvious. So the initial obfuscation during Crimea, it's a fairly reasonable supposition that the goal of that was, was decision paralysis in the rest of Europe so that there was enough uncertainty to keep anyone who might consider trying to interfere or doing something that would be a a sufficient impediment to that operation proceeding from doing so. And they created just enough noise, just enough denial, refutation to create just enough uncertainty to do that. And that's probably what they were trying to accomplish. Now, take the recent political meddling in this country if we're to believe that russia supported hacking the the dnc servers and releasing that information and some of the other things that have gone on exactly what were they trying to accomplish was it a naked promotion of trump as a candidate of choice was it a desire to have a very close election so that they could undermine american democracy what exactly were they trying to accomplish? If you can figure out exactly what they were trying to accomplish, then you can construct an argument that suggests how effective they were at accomplishing that. When they're just making noise, when it's just obfuscation, maybe that's an objective. Uh, I, I think a lot of what their propaganda tries to do in Europe is just undermine confidence in information sources, make things ugly, make things muddy, make the average consumer more skeptical of everything. Gee, maybe with big periodic surveys, you can see sw- slowly dwindling confidence in media and official news sources and say they're succeeding, but how much of that have they done and how much of that is, is a product of, of other kinds of trends? So it is, but I think it's important that we try to do that. Uh, and I think where we can pick out opportunities where there has been some kind of failed event. I think it's easier if, if if they do something and it fails spectacularly to pick out what they were trying to accomplish and then of course then it didn't work, but maybe that makes it easier to recognize others. Good question though.